Hi, welcome to Tube to Table, the podcast about helping tube-fed kids become happy and healthy eaters. Every week, we will dive into the basics of tube weaning to help unravel the conflicting information families get from doctors, therapists, friends, and family. I'm Jenny, a feeding therapist, mom, and food lover. And I'm Heidi. I'm also a feeding therapist, and I love sharing meals with friends and family and helping kids learn to eat. Come with us as we share practical tips and provide real-world expert advice so that parents can help their little ones start their journey from feeding tube to family table. Hi, and welcome to the Tube to Table podcast. In this week's episode, we're going to discuss how to make sense of oral motor therapies. I'm Jenny, and I'm an occupational therapist, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, Heidi. Hi, Heidi. How are you doing? Hi, Jenny. How are you today? I'm doing really good. Yeah, things are things are going well. I'm glad to be doing this episode. I know that it's something you and I both <laughs> like to, to explore with families. We do. We've been talking about doing this one for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a lot of conflicting um, opinions on this, so I know it's a hot topic that will have a lot of interest in it. And we've touched on some of this stuff in other episodes, but just to kind of give a quick overview, what we're talking about when we're talking about oral motor therapies generally are interventions that address the movements of the mouth, the position and coordination of movements of the of the mouth that often happen in conjunction with feeding therapies in a traditional therapy model, whether it be outpatient, inpatient, or home-based. And Heidi, could you explain just a little bit more about oral motor therapies and how you came to become familiar with them and that sure. whole yeah. journey? As, as a speech therapist and a uh, specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and um, having worked in the hospital for a long time and coming from that very medical background, I, I need to start out by saying that there is actually a considerable amount of evidence for those types of exercises, for things that work on um, chin str- uh, jaw strength and um, movements of the mouth, and but that evidence is in the adult world. It's in it's based um, in patients who had function and lost it, and that there is actually a known weakness related to some kind of insult or injury. So there is some evidence for that. Yeah, and I think that's different. really surprising for me as a therapist who was trained, and I know it was surprising for you when you really mm-hmm. dive into the evidence as pediatric therapists that went to gr- good grad schools, great grad schools in our opinion, <laughs> to get this training and specialize in feeding kids, um, what we to find out that this really, these really common, frequently utilized techniques are based on data that really is in the adult population and also the population of people that have um, lost skills through mm-hmm. traumatic events or injuries. Mm-hmm. I, I, and it's interesting because it's actually a really controversial topic. In the, in the world of speech, it's even more controversial when it comes to speaking. Mm-hmm. And people tend to leave the feeding area alone a little bit when they they criticize or um, question the use of some of these oral motor exercises. And I, you know, Jenny, I think you and I are both saying that there are kids who have weaknesses. You know, there are kids who have some of these um, deficits. So that's where it gets confusing to people because they are working on, you know, kids who have some deficits. And so doing some exercises seems to make a lot of sense for um, for making things better for these kids because you can see something is wrong. Right. And just um, full disclosure here, Heidi and I both worked in our feeding um careers Mm -hmm. (laughs) using the skills that we were taught in oral motor trainings and in graduate school. 
um, to try to help kids. And I can speak for myself. I got really frustrated because I was doing a lot of work and I was making progress that I was documenting, but the progress I was making, I think I've shared this in a previous episode, wasn't resulting in getting kids off the tube for kids that had tubes, or it wasn't resulting in um, a big quality of life shift, which is the whole reason I got into this field. And I loved this in the beginning because I like concrete things. I like evidence. I like progressive step-by-step sorts of things. And so I was really adamantly uh, a supporter of doing some of those things. And I had lots of different activities to do this. But like you, Jenny, I was finding over the years that either there was kids who seemed to be able to do everything else. So their motor abilities didn't match what I was perceiving to be deficits. So these were kids who were more typically developing motor-wise. You know, they could walk and they could talk. And to say that there's weakness, quote-unquote, or low tone or whatever they were being labeled with um, was contributing to their feeding didn't make sense to me because it didn't make sense because it wasn't impacting other areas. Or the other thing, you know, I would, these kids clearly had some, some weaknesses, some things related to their birth history or related to a genetic condition or, you know, whatever. They clearly did have some motor deficits, but doing these activities wasn't making the feeding progress that I would have hoped. It didn't jump over to um, the application that we were hoping that it would. Yeah, and that frustration ultimately, which we'll tell a story of, of, about at another time, brought us brought us together in our careers mm-hmm. in a, in, a, in an indirect way. Um, but but just to back up a step, what we're ta- like, so you may know oral motor strategies as like goals on your kid's treatment plan, or that you might know them as IEP goals or something like that. Anybody that's working on having your child do activities like move their tongue or move their mouth in a certain way or use devices um, to or even small low tech tools to stimulate their mouth to get them to move in different ways. Those are oral motor strategies. That's the kind of stuff that we're talking about. And for people and parents that are in a chaotic situation where there's this lack of progress with feeding. And so oftentimes, not always, people that are tube, parents of tube-fed kids are watching their kids not feel very well or vomit frequently or, you know, having to put the tube down in their nose and down, down into their stomach and all of those unpleasantries that can come with tube feeding. And so you walk into a therapy room and you get offered these protocols. And as a mom, that I can understand A, like you pointed out, Heidi, there's a deficit in the skill because it's not happening. You can see that they can't do it. And then you're working on exercises and that's what we do in the gym or in other areas of our life. We practice until we get better. And so, and then the the kind of control or structure of the program also feels comforting. And so Mm -hmm. what we find is when people come to us, they're often, they've often spent months or even years engaged in oral motor therapies. Mm -hmm. And we're going to take a little turn here because we can tell you that the majority of our kids, if we were just to assess their mouths, are going to present with some type of oral motor coordination, which makes sense. One of the major, the two major ways that you use and improve your mouth and the way that it moves isn't happening because they are tube fed. So they're not able to eat. Therefore, we wouldn't expect their motor skills to be in a normal place. And so the, the, the thing that gets misplaced often, although there can be very well separate underlying oral motor deficits, is that people see the oral motor deficit as the, as the problem 
when we really view it most of the time as either a symptom of the problem or a, co- a problem that's concurrent with this lack of trust or understanding of feeding. And so what we can say about the oral motor skills work that we see being done in most settings that are not what we consider responsive feeding environments or feeding therapies in the United States are being done out of context. And what I mean by that is they're not being done in the context of something that is innately meaningful to the child. And I would add to that, Jenny, I think that was such a great description. And I would add to that, they're being done out of context, but they're also being done out of sequence. So by doing it out of sequence, that's not even allowing it to be placed in the right context. So say a little bit more about that. So so when you're like, let's say you're in a therapy and you're working on lip closure or something like that, mm-hmm. what's the thing that should come before? Like, what do you want to have happen developmentally before you're working on those kind of higher level? Yeah, motor that's skills? a great, that's great. Um, I think one of, if, if we reframe everything and put yourself in the mind of a kiddo who hasn't eaten before and you start working on lip closure, they're going to think it's lip closure for the sake of lip closure. Yeah. So they don't, or just that you're making them do something that they don't understand at all. So what we, what makes the most sense to the kids that we work with when we see the, um, their brains clicking into place when we see them starting to understand it is when we start working on these things when they want to eat. Yeah. So putting the understanding of food and the purpose of food first, mm-hmm. then they can start tweaking and improving and modifying. Yes. That the is things what they're doing happens first naturally too. So like, mm-hmm. I just, I'm thinking about <laughs> my own kids, you know, like w- when a baby's born, they're usually not very quiet. There's usually, you know, I know that most kids on tubes have had a different route, but like, let's say all things are healthy. Everybody's doing well. A baby's born. They're, tr- they're it's shocking <laughs> to the system before they can learn to latch to a bottle or to the breast. They have to um, kind of adjust for a minute. They have to, to, to kind of, you know, get used to their environment and feel safe and comfortable. And then they can, you know, start to pursue Mm -hmm. that. But then that's true of different levels of development too, not just right after birth. It's also true, you know, before a child learns how to chew, they understand that they're comfortable with the people feeding them. They understand that food makes them feel better. Mm -hmm. They understand that drinking, perhaps uh, drinking made them feel better and how to do it with their mouth. So there's an initiation happening to your point. There's this, there's this drive, this internal drive versus an external drive that they might not be cognitively aware of, but that they are physiologically tuned into. Right. And it's interesting that this is one of the very basic things that the start is actually hardwired and programmed in. Kids, babies are born, again, all things being equal, and they have a handful of reflexes that start that process of eating that they learn from. And so if everything is going well and smoothly and they're in a safe environment, like you said, those reflexes start working and the brain starts putting the reflux, the reflex (laughs) and the... um, the reflex and the desire to eat and all of and the safety and the ability to do so successfully, those experiences provide feedback to the body and it becomes this ongoing loop of, I feel this, I do this, and then I feel better. I feel this, I do this, and then I feel better. So it becomes this learned process. And, you know, none of the kids come into the world knowing how to use a spoon. None yeah, of the kids come into the builds. world knowing how to chew. These they build. build. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. And that they so morph true. from and one we, skill to the other. And mm-hmm. when we put a child at a therapy table or even at home, but expect them to do these activities or these movements without internal meaning. Like they don't really know why they're doing it except to please the therapist. And that's an external drive. That's not an mm-hmm. internal drive. We're, we're skipping several steps developmentally. And um, just a quick note about con- like the motivation and mm-hmm. motor skills in general. As an occupational therapist, I also have training on general motor development and how we learn to um, acquire skills motorically across the body, whether it be gross motor, fine motor, oral motor, and, and those coordination, the coordination of those skills. And then, uh, or if we lose them, how we get them back. And what the research shows in children and in adults is for, for the whole body, not just for the mouth, is that when you are um, doing something for a reason, your improvement is markedly increased. You Mm -hmm. are going to meet your goals sooner if you're doing it for the right reasons. And just a quick little anecdote from the tube weaning world. The first child that we ever formally weaned at at, um, Thrive by Spectrum Pediatrics, then just Spectrum Pediatrics, um, was a little boy who I will refer to lovingly here as Noodles because that's what his big brother named him. And Noodles was... um, I worked with him in early intervention. I was also an early intervention therapist working on feeding and I had all my tricks, right? I was, I love this kid so much. I got, I started working with him when he was just out of the NICU and we did tons and tons of work on oral motor skills and feeding in other areas of development. And it wasn't until I said, okay, here's what we're working on. This is all this research that we're studying that shows the importance of, um, you know, intention, trust, understanding, and self-regulation, that that drive has to be internal, that we saw once we, once we explained it and then started that program, which is, was the early days of what we run now at Thrive by Spectrum Pediatrics, we saw more progress in that those 10 days than we had seen in 18 months. Mm-hmm. Because he was hung- not only hungry, like we've talked, hunger isn't the only important thing, but he understood why food was important. There was no pressure. He only brought things to his mouth when it was driven by him. And it was mm-hmm. you know, messy and not great because he had some difficulty self-feeding. And he did have, because of a neurological deficit, some oral motor deficits that were legitimately, undeniably there. But he was able to overcome those because he had the context in, you know, of really understanding and trusting um, ooh, which was just huge. And, and for me, you know, really brought tears to my eyes because we had been working on developing this program for so long. And then to see it happen with a kid was just remarkable. Right. And still is. And he loves cooking shows and he's a big boy now and loves to eat and cook. And, <laughs> um, you know, that brings to mind two things for me, Jenny. Number one is, um, that number one is what our outcome data shows, um, and the two, and the second thing is that it it comes around to a, a common parents that a common question that parents ask us all the time. We're analyzing some of our outcome data. We did some oral motor scale assessments for all of our kids this year, and what we're showing is that most of the kids in this program make the the most progress in the first ten days to one month after we start working with them intensively. So they're. And that's when we're introducing hunger, and that's when we're really working on trust a lot. So there is something to those two pieces that are driving that process so quickly, um, which, again, speaks to intention, and it speaks to 
application of doing it in something meaningful. Um, and I think it also speaks to a third thing, which answers the question that parents ask us all the time is, how is this going to happen? How are we going to make this happen? How do we know, like, how do we do this? I understand rewards. I, you know, a family said recently, I understand the external reinforcement, but what are you going to do? Because I can't, you can't, you can't um, make this happen this way. And, and the answer is that we're just uncovering it. It's yeah. in every kid. We're driven, designed, programmed to do this and we need to get out of their way and let them do as much as they possibly can and then assist where needed when if they do run up against something and they do have trouble chewing something hard like bagels you know maybe they do need some strength activities and you want a therapist that has a really strong understanding of oral motor functions and how they develop and how you can facilitate them you just don't want them to use those strategies and that knowledge in the absence of these other really important elements that that facilitate self-regulation, understanding, and trust in the context of um, purposeful activity for the child, those internal drives to eat. And so um, just a quick kind of summary of a few things that come up for families that come to us scratching their heads. Um, A lot of times people will come to us and say, the therapist says my son has to learn how to chew or the, PD, or the doctor says, mm-hmm. usually it's the therapist, has to learn how to chew before we can start cutting calories. I mean, I would say more, at least 50% of the time, mm-hmm. we have people come in and say that, that they have to be able to chew or some some oral motor milestone, chew and swallow. And mo- most of our kids, quite frankly, aren't doing any of that when they come to us. True. And what our data internally shows and is supported by the general population data about how we learn motor skills <laughs> is contrary to that is that no, in fact, not only is it the wrong order, but you have potential to add to the problem. When Mm -hmm. you're taking a child who has a tube that was needed and amazing and quite often life-saving, but they don't understand food, and then you're adding another complicated thing happening with their mouth mouth, when most of the time Mm -hmm. they've already experienced weird stuff or uncomfortable, painful stuff like being intubated. So we don't want to further complicate. Right. That, and then the other thing is it's external. We're, we want to protect our children from now through the rest of their lives. And part of our job is protecting them by teaching them having autonomy over their bodies. And um, Heidi, I forget your awesome quote. I know it was on our social media this week, but um, it is, I think it's everybody's job. Is that what it is? It's everybody's it's job. Everybody's job. Teaching a child to respect and protect their own body is everybody's job. It is. We it's, don't get a pass just because we're working on feeding. Right. And I know this might sound like an indirect connection, but if we're teaching a child who doesn't understand, want, or need to do the thing that's happening, to ignore what their body's telling them about it, because often when it starts, it's confusing and scary, even with the most loving and well-meaning therapists, then aren't we teaching them the opposite lesson, that, that, that it's okay? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not talking about needed medical interventions. They're needed. But, but it's just a worrisome dynamic for us. And then, uh, Heidi, you, and, you were also saying earlier that like there is a time and a place for this for paying attention to their skill development. For sure. And and yeah. it's just, we're not saying that you have to like throw oral motor skills out with the bathwater here. What we're saying is you've got to do it. Just keep in mind this functional element. And I think, you know, the other thing that I always come back around to as well is um, not only do we need to teach them to protect their body, but we're also, 
when kids get tubes, they kind of get dumped out of typical kid world and get dumped into this therapy world. Yeah. And the goal of therapy isn't to go against the body. The goal of therapy is to facilitate development the way the body's designed to work. And kids learn to eat by eating. That's mm-hmm. the way every kid learns it. And so taking it out of that applied world in which we are designed to work doesn't make sense. You've just made the task harder for kids mm-hmm. who are already struggling and having a difficult time yeah. with this. And so by going counter to the body's own mechanisms makes it more challenging. Yeah. And just a little PSA in support of our fellow feeding therapists out there. Uh, you know, full disclosure, as I said earlier, Heidi and I both went, are, you know, went to very highly ranked graduate schools in our fields. We specialized early in this, in this specialty feeding kids. Um, and yet we didn't have that information. And my point is that not the, the most intelligent, skilled, well-meaning, loving, and empathetic therapists are engaging in these therapies. Mm-hmm. We know because we'd like to think we were some of them. You know, we really were devoted to our patients and to being the best that we could be. And yet we didn't have that information. And that's something that's changing right now. And mm-hmm. we're a part of helping that change along because we really believe that people, um, need to know more about how responsive feeding contributes to lifelong health and improvement. And I will just to, to, we'll go into the story in a, in a bigger way on another day. But um, one of the ways that Jenny and I got together was because of a family that I was engaging in some of these oral motor activities uh, along with other things. He'd been two fed since birth. He had a really complicated medical condition and his mom just kept searching and searching and found um, spectrum and found Jenny and said, whatever you think, I, you know, I respect you. I trust you. Can we talk about this? Can we look at this together? And when Jenny and I got together, it really filled in a lot of blanks that I've been looking for. Um, but if this mom had just left, if she hadn't had this discussion with me, um, if she hadn't engaged in a, in a meaningful, respectful conversation, um, I, I, probably would have continued on the route that I was going on. And so partnering with your therapist and and digging deeper into why they're doing what they're doing in a respectful way actually can make a big impact. I love that you say that. Yeah. And our experience also, because we come into children's lives to do this intensive work. And most of the time, these kids have other therapists for the most part. I'm not going to say all, but for the most part, when we start working with therapists, they're they're not, they're open. You know, most therapists, their focus is just helping kids get better. And so if you approach that conversation with your therapist about the importance of introducing context, introducing internal drives to eat versus external drives to eat, and really embracing the fundamentals of responsive feeding in order in order to preserve your child's lifelong relationship with food, but also in the short term to improve their skills um, with food and eating, I think, I don't think it's unique to our dynamic. I actually mm-hmm. think that most therapists are just hungry, excuse the pun there, but they are really <laughs> hungry for more information that they just don't have. Every therapist I know goes into this to help kids. Yeah. And every therapist I know does what they do because they believe very strongly that it's helping. And I do think some of the kids on um, feeding tubes although that's 100% of our kids, it's not 100% of most people's populations. So and they, they um, when you're stuck, they usually feel stuck too. The therapist usually um, understands that 
or feels that they need more information because they they can see um, the progress or the lack of progress. And I will say that there are some programs out there that talk about um, this process being slow. And I understand where they're coming from. Their intent is to make sure that you're not pushing and, and creating an adverse um, situation by pushing too hard. And, th- and there certainly is something for that. But if you feel like your kid kiddo has got greater potential and you just keep being told to wait and keep being told to um, that it will come and that this is just a long time process. And, and it may be, but I, I would urge you if you feel stuck to dig a little deeper and see, um, ask a few more questions about why you're feeling stuck and what, what the true problem is. Is it the ability or is it other yeah. things? And certainly if you're not getting anywhere with those, you know, diplomatic and collaborative discussions, uh, you know, go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you need to feel supported and understood where you are. Um, we just, you know, often those same therapists that haven't gotten you there with the right information right. can be the ones that help you. Right. So yeah. to wrap it up a little bit, I think, you know, the big things are doing things in the right context, doing things in the right order, you know, the context being hunger and purposeful eating or at least a curiosity about food. Um, even if it's not fully intention yet, curiosity is a, is a lead in to that. So doing it um, when kiddos are interested, doing it in the right order, meaning interest first, um, skill second, mm-hmm. um, which makes sense when you think about anything that you're learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, making sure that you are respecting your child's cues and that you are teaching them that it's okay to protect their body when things don't feel safe. to them. Wonderful. Well, we hope that you all found this helpful. Um, Stay tuned. Go to our website and our blog for our show notes. They'll be up and uh, we'll talk to you all next week. Have a great one. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tube to Table podcast. Every week, we're going to share our show notes at thrivewithspectrum.com. In the show notes, you can find a summary of what we discussed and links to all the resources that we mentioned. Also, you can visit us on social media and Instagram and Facebook. We can be found at Thrive with Spectrum and on Twitter. You can find us at Thrive with SP. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us on social media and let us know if you have any input or any topics that you'd really like to see us address. We'll be back next week.